Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva, Israel National News slash radio. Welcome to another Thursday morning of political talk and commentary. And don't want to sound like, you know, we're nitpicking because this would be going on no matter what. But we're going to talk once again about the transition. The transition is really hugely important. Um, to the future of our country. And you know, we talk about the election. We'll talk about the transition. And I don't want to neglect both parties because there is a transition going on amongst the Democrats as well. As you know, it's not necessarily a happy time for many in Washington Democrats who had probably been expecting to measure their new offices in the various holes of power throughout the executive branch, as many were expecting, if not supremely confident of a Hillary Clinton victory. But the big the big politics going on right now with regard to the Democratic Party is the race for DNC chair. That is the Democratic National Committee chairman and not a governmental spot, but a hugely important spot, um, not, not just symbolically, but I think functionally as well. Um, as many are aware... Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a Jewish congresswoman, I would say very identifiably Jewish congresswoman from South Florida, uh, occupied that spot during the Obama years. Uh, That was not without controversy. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz was shown to have been aiding the Clinton campaign over the campaign of Bernie Sanders throughout the 2016 election. Uh, That came out kind of mid-campaign or towards the end of the primary season uh, through the help of what it seems to be through the help of Russian hackers and WikiLeaks. Um, If you read an absolutely fantastic New York Times piece, uh, we'll kind of get into the newsy thing a little bit later. But if you read an absolutely fantastic New York Times piece about the Russian hacking and the utter incompetence on the technology from a technology perspective of DNC staffers or DNC contractor in this case – it bears mentioning of the story that the hackers had months and months and months in which to steal DNC secrets, and it really is instructive that it's not just the government and it's not just officialdom that needs to be uh, – it's, it's everybody in the political process that needs to be very aware of – leaks and you have to be aware not just of leaks that are wanted that people I mean the person on the other side wants to leak information that might be embarrassing but also people who are on the outside who have no privileged conversation um, they would have a, they have many interests in going ahead and hacking I mean this is a modern day version of Watergate that happened here you know as uh, Watergate was the all right, the Republican break-in to DNC headquarters. This was essentially a third-party break-in to the Democratic National Committee, and those emails were on display for in the months leading up to the general election, I think quite spectacularly, uh, if you go through them. And, you know, the candor and the candid nature, it was just, you know, painfully embarrassing to so many Democratic staffers. But let's just talk about Keith Ellison for a second, and let's talk about the race for DNC chairman. It seems to be a two-way race right now. Tom Perez, the former labor secretary, a Latino, and Keith Ellison, the progressive congressman from Minnesota. So 
as many of you know, Keith Ellison has a record is a is a African American Muslim from Minnesota. Uh, not necessarily the you know the state or the locality you'd expect, but he is a chair of the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic Party, and this is the struggle, of course, through uh, of that's going to go on between the centrists and those who believe that the. Democratic Party is me best served by trying to appeal to those Trump voters to try and appeal to those disaffected white working class Democrats who have left the party and left it for Trump in who are being left behind. And those who are saying the Democratic message in lies in the Bernie Sanders message, those who say that Sanders is the key. If we only turn out more progressives, more people excited about Democratic politics and the way that Bernie Sanders excited them, that that is the key for the party in order to do that. And you know, look, it's uh, definitely there's definitely a struggle between those two sides. Uh, I think that, you know, a couple things that should bother uh, many those, let's say, who are more moderate, more centrist with regard to Keith Ellison. And it's not just the Farrakhan connection, although I will say I did watch this clip. Uh, I did watch a Morning Joe of Joe Scarborough asking Keith Ellison about his his past praise, which I think was 20 years ago of Louis Farrakhan and calling him a role model, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with him repudiating previous statements. People should be allowed to do that. It's not a question of you should say, oh, I said something once and therefore I'm stuck with it forever. Um, that really should not be the case. But what I do have a little bit of a problem with it, in the past, he has essentially said, well, I wasn't aware of Farrakhan's anti-Semitism. I wasn't aware of certain his anti anti-everything. I mean, really, you know, anti-white, anti-Semitic, but particular, I think Farrakhan is particularly scorned for the Jewish people and has really reflected that in his statements and speeches, no matter where you go. But it's hard. That's what I'm saying. It's hard to not know that Louis Farrakhan is an anti-Semite. He's very open about it. He doesn't hide it. He's not, it's not a genteel anti-Semitism. This is an overt hatred of Jews on a very, 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 very public level. And to say, well, I wasn't really aware or why were you – well, let's just take the good that he does without the, without the bad and the trouble. I, I mean that's just not a responsible statement. That's what bothers me more. And not to say I repudiate the statements but actually to have a real discussion, that a real discussion can take place, that these types of views are anathema. If you want to reach out to all people, if you want to be a, a figure who is – more mainstream, you can't embrace people the same way that we expect those on the right to reject the embrace, reject the support of somebody like David Duke, who I believe even this week um, asked reporters who are interviewing him, are you Jewish? Um, because, you know, that seems to be that David Duke, his refrain all the time, if you're looking online, and, you know, the best thing probably just, just to ignore the guy because... You know, even as a candidate, he's a colossal failure. But the same way the people on the Democratic side expect people on the right to repudiate anti-Semitism, we should also repudiate and have a very candid discussion of why people like Louis Farrakhan are so un-American. And that's, you know, that, that's one of the points. The other point really is that 
is Keith Ellison the guy with his very left of center politics to say to to do any type of outreach to disaffected white voters? And I hate to frame the election in this way, but I think we saw it. We saw that divide between uh, people of uh, minority and white voters in this election in very stark terms, very geographic terms. And can Ellison be the guy who's going to reach out beyond the cities? Because that is the big issue right now for the Democrats is that they are clustered so much, so centered around the Northeast and the East Coast cities, as well as the West, the far West Coast. And I mean, you know, not the, not the Mountain West anymore, but it's really California. And, you know, the Clinton advantage in the popular vote of, you know, let's say close to three million Although I see Trump supporters continue to deny this. I mean, I, I get posts and texts and WhatsApp messages that actually Trump really won the popular vote. Um, and, and I just don't – we're talking about numbers, people. It's These are numbers, okay? I mean, whatever reason, whatever excuse you want to come up with or, why Trump, or Trump comes up with about why he actually really won and this was a landslide. I mean, of course, by the way, this election was not a landslide. Um, this was actually an extraordinarily close election. I think the marginal electoral college was like the 45th. Um, or I'm sorry. So, I mean, it's just a very – well, we got that number a little bit later. But the uh, but the the electoral college is meant to have some significant margins. This was not a historic margin. This was not Ronald Reagan in 1984 uh, at, at all. These were not FDR numbers. These were not Eisenhower numbers. This is not – as if uh, Donald Trump swept the country and, um, you know, mandate is not. But we'll leave it aside. California really was what delivered a the huge, huge numbers for Hillary on the popular side. And you know, the way the Electoral College is set up, and I, you know, I don't have necessarily, I don't have a problem with the Electoral College. You know, you follow the rules as it were, and I understand why it exists. Um, there is an imbalance um, I mean, this is this is the problem. This is what we'll get to. Um, you want to cluster your party in urban areas where people are more progressive, more democratic, and you want to appeal to them, and you want to cluster it in college towns. And it, American politics is set up not just on the federal level, not just the electoral college, but is set up to favor rural voters, non-urban voters. Non that is how it's set up. There is a reason that we allow two senators from every state. That means a person in Wyoming, which is, I think, the least populated state, about seven hundred, maybe seven hundred thousand people. There are there are senator, there are several states that only have one congressman, congressperson, but they have two senators. And presumably, the senators have more power. Which, when you think about it, is absolutely ridiculous, right? Why are you giving rural voters those living so much more power? Okay, and it's the same way on a state level. You have uh, you have many cases where you have a smaller diversity you have many many districts that are uh very have an incredible imbalance of voters many democrats in very um in a very few number of districts because of their concentration and you have republicans in much larger geographic districts in now it's tougher at a state level because that's also proportional and that's you know it's supposed to be proportional but there are ways and that proportional representation doesn't always work out. The, I mean, 
and and it works both ways. I mean, let me just say this. I mean, the way the partisan draw lines, everybody wants to say, give you give you an example here in New York. Okay, the the New York State Senate. Everybody wants to say New York is two to one. I'm sorry, three to two Democratic in registration, but the state Senate is kind of even as far as Republicans, and that's because of creative drawing the lines, et cetera. Okay, I'll grant you that the lines are drawn creatively. There's no question about that. That's the process. But at the, at the same time, the assembly is more than two-thirds uh, Democrat. Now, the the if you say it's three to two, then it should be, you know, presumably, if you want to make it proportional representation – the Republicans should have another 10, 20 seats in the assembly, but they don't because the, the districts are drawn to elect Democrats, just like the districts that those that many districts are drawn to elect Republicans on the Senate side. So it works the same way in many different in many different places. There's not a lot you can go ahead and say as far as, well, it only works for one party. It works for both parties uh, when they want it to work for them. And that's you know that's the way of politics. Power begets power. Power wants to go ahead and and maintain itself. And you know so much, uh, so many complaints about that really are, you know, really about the system as opposed to really a very very specific instance. But again, we we digress a second. What we I really wanted to bring out here was the fact that the Democrats need to think about how they are going to. Ideally, they should have an electoral college advantage because they are the big states. But if you don't put together a coalition, both – you can't – in certain states, you can win by just running up huge numbers in urban areas, such as New York, for example, I guess, such as California, that it's an insurmountable lead because there are so many people in the cities. So you can't – you know, a, a Republican hasn't won statewide in New York State since 2002. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult just because of the concentration of voters in New York City. So it's really um, – but – and that actually is indicative of an imbalance throughout the country. But if you don't put together – if you have states where that don't have that urban dominance, like a Pennsylvania, for example, and you still have – yes, the Philly suburbs are – incredibly important but if you all if you get swept across rural pennsylvania maybe that vote isn't enough and that was the same thing in wisconsin where you had milwaukee and the the city of milwaukee milwaukee county versus essentially the rest of the state and if you look at michigan in a similar way so if the urban voters don't turn out then you are not going to win that state now that of course becomes the big challenge here for the Democrats is the issue to turn out more urban voters, more of the Obama coalition, or is the issue to kind of reach out across the board? I'm sure no, but no politicians wants to say we're not going to reach out across the board. No politician wants to say, hey, you know, this is our base and that's when we're going to do it. And although it did seem like the Clinton campaign seemed to have done that, you know, they very micro focused, laser focused, micro targeted uh, their voters and they didn't get the numbers that they needed. In order to win. Now, of course, let's just remind everybody, nobody thought that Trump was going to win, including Trump, including the RNC. I think that's very evident from the transition, a little bit of chaos in the transition, but nobody thought that he was going to win because any model, any historical model, and polls are married with historical models, said that the numbers didn't add up 
in many of these places. But what you had was a surge of rural voters coupled with a really a, a depressed vote in when compared to 2012 and 2008, a depressed vote in urban areas and suburban areas. And that was the key to the surprising Trump victory. Okay, so Keith Ellison, I know we're not going to focus on Tom Perez. We're not going to focus on the centrist uh, uh, candidate or the other candidates. But the question is, do you, does the Democratic Party want as a figurehead a super progressive, very not – well – Calls himself pro-Israel. I don't like to throw people out of the pro-Israel camp, but I think that there are troubling aspects of Keith Ellison on, an Israel, on the Israel front. And he said some things, uh, particularly about the 7 million people in Israel controlling the fate of the Middle East, um, you know, kind of uh, harkens back to some uh, protocols of the elders of Zion, if you will. Um, not quite that bad. But does, is that the face? Is that the person that they want to move forward with? In that. And remember, if you don't hold the White House, the DNC chair actually does wield some influence. They don't hold the White House. They don't have the speakership of the House, and they don't have the Senate. Um, so – and um, you know, uh, we'll have to see how it moves forward on that, whether that becomes a big fight and who you know comes up to oppose. There really is not a huge centrist wing right now of the Democratic Party that's there to oppose it. Okay, so as we talk about transition, let's get into transition. And the first thing I want to talk about is Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson wins the Secretary of State sweepstakes, the beauty contest. Uh, I don't know how he did in the bathing suit competition, but he seems to have come out of nowhere after this very, this incredible soap opera. Uh, definitely a, would be a good episode of Transition Apprentice uh, in, in Trump Tower. And becomes Secretary of State. The CEO of ExxonMobil negotiated deals around the world, particularly in trouble spots, but is um, known for as a Russia file or a Putin friend. Uh, received a very high award from Russia. And is this the best time, at least the optics of it, with Russia in the news so much that you want to try and move this guy forward. Um, you know, there's two things here with regard to confirmation. I think he will be confirmed ultimately because it's hard for Republicans to all to turn on the administration where, in a sense, you know, to have that fight. But is Trump and the transition kind of picking that fight uh, by putting a gentleman like Rex Tillerson, truthfully with no foreign policy experience, although that might be a good thing, um, you know, really a deal-making experience was not necessarily the same as foreign policy experience. But there's two things – there's two – in this uh, – excuse me. For this type of position, there are actually two steps. Everybody says, well, okay, you need 52 votes, 52 Republicans in the Senate and 48 Democrats. Republicans only need 51. Republicans should be able to carry it actually or 50 in a tie. Um, so you can't lose three Republicans. But you also have to win the committee. And right now, the committee makeup, and that will continue because it's evenly divided Senate, is only one vote. So you can't lose any votes on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And there are, you know, one or not two. Um, one of the reasons we are told that Rudy Giuliani dropped out and, or, and John Bolton could not be considered for Secretary of State is because Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky was not going to vote for them and basically said, I'm not going to vote for them. So 
you can't, you're not going to get him out of the committee because uh, presumably, you know, the Democrats might all vote against. You never know. And, but you also have, uh, so you also have Marco Rubio on the committee who has certainly said that he is troubled by the Putin ties. And we should be troubled by the Putin ties. I mean, the only person I, the only person who doesn't seem to be bothered by Russia's involvement in our election is Donald Trump. I, it just, it, it actually boggles my mind because it doesn't, we kind of go back to the idea of he, when you ask him the question or you ask people from his team the question, it's entirely like, well, they weren't really helping us. I'm not convinced that Russia was necessarily on anybody's side here. Okay. Everybody wants to be convinced they were on Donald Trump's side. Fine. You wanted to, it, to me, that's not the point. The point here was to undermine the legitimacy of the election and legitimacy of the process and hacking. I mean, the truth is they did release only Democratic emails. They did not release Republican emails and supposedly to have them. And the other thing is there is, seems to be very clear evidence, bipartisan and professional evidence from the intelligence community that says that Russia hacked hacked our political apparatus, meaning the DNC and, and, and different consultants of the DCCC, as, as well as Republicans, although we don't know exactly who, and apparently they did not hack the RNC, and that seems to be what Reince Priebus was, uh, was talking, uh, you know, was in the, denying when, when he's been on TV saying, well, no, it didn't happen. Uh, but there was an intent here in disrupting the election and undermining the election. I, I think that's pretty clear. Um, why turn all over all these emails to WikiLeaks if you're not trying to embarrass somebody and you're not trying to undermine something? Um, there's no question. And was it the Russians? Well, yeah, it seems to be pretty clear from the the malware that they used, and it's been reported now, that it was the Russians that did it. Now, there are some out there that says, well, we can't trust the mainstream media because it's saying – look, it, I don't know. Is there a truth out there? I mean there is – you might not like the conclusions or – some of the things in the end that reporters say that come out in the, in the media. But I think it's pretty clear based on what's out there, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or Politico. They all I, have really come, reported a lot of this, and they report both sides. And I don't want to I, I, I get into the – are they anti-Trump or not? They were reporting both sides. It's pretty clear that the Russians did this. The only person seems to be resisting that is Donald Trump, and shockingly so because I think he puts his party in a very difficult position. You have all these Republicans. Vladimir Putin is not very popular on the Hill. He's not very popular amongst Americans. So why does Trump have this blind spot for him? I can't explain it. It's kind of a, it's kind of a mystery to me right now. But at the same time, I mean, let's just talk for a second about well. Don't you want to know what, what happened? I mean, don't we want an investigation? Don't we want to understand that we, our election could have been undermined? Now, we're not saying that they would have changed the results. I don't think it would have changed the results. Trust me, they tried to the recount, and Trump ended up ahead in Wisconsin. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous to have done the whole thing, and, you know, it's it. But 
the bottom line here is that we want to know what happens. The only person who doesn't seem to want to know, again, is Donald Trump. Now, I understand you want to protect your victory. You don't want anything to shatter your victory or anything to cloud your victory. So it's a natural inclination. On the other hand, this is a foreign power that seems to have had its way with our American political process. And that is alarming. That's a problem. I, I And I'm kind of mystified by – and the response, of course, from the Trump transition was, well, these are the people who brought us WMD in Iraq. It, it's – you know, I think it's like more name-calling. It's like saying, hey, lion's head, you know, let's not address the substance. Let's attack the person. Uh, there's going to come a time where Donald Trump is going to want the expertise and the know-how of our intelligence community. Uh, I don't know when that is going to be because maybe he, you know, that's the reason he doesn't want the presidential daily briefs. But you can't be an outsider forever. Eventually, you're going to have to own the apparatus. You're going to have to own the professionalism of American government. And for all its faults, American government is quite good and quite effective. Uh, you know, some high-profile profile incidents notwithstanding. Let's just talk about the transition for a second and. Let's just talk about conflicts of interest and put it that way. Um, what There just seems to be a huge blind spot, once again, just like the blind spot with Russia, about the Trump family's approach to conflicts of interest. And, you know, conflicts of interest don't exist yet, but they're going to very soon. Now, Trump was supposed to today have a press conference regarding to how he is going to sort out his business and how he's going to wall himself off. From his business and how his kids are going to run the business, etc. Uh, I mean, nobody out there that I've seen, both Republicans and Democrats, as far as lawyers, think that any of the anything he has talked about so far is at all sufficient to avoid conflicts of interest. And we talked. I talked last week about the emoluments clause, about taking money from foreign governments. Um, you know, if that money comes in various forms, um, whether it's overseas to Trump properties or whether it's here. At Trump properties in the United States, that is uh, potentially problematic. And I think the visual problem from a lot of people is that he says, well, my kids are running the business and I'm not talking to them. But they're sitting there at the transition meetings. Donald Trump Jr. is interviewing candidates for Secretary of Interior. And they're, the issue – I mean Sean Spicer goes on TV and says, well – everybody knows about it, so it's not a conflict of interest because it's disclosed. That's not what a conflict of interest means. Conflict of interest means is you have an ulterior motive that's not the motive of the country and putting the country first. That might be a, a personal motive just because everybody knows about it. That doesn't necessarily be – you know, that doesn't necessarily negate the conflict. And right now I think it's a another blind spot or this would probably seem to be a willful blind spot at least on their part. Uh, I think you got to do better – in assuring the American people that you're in this for them and not for yourself. Uh, I'm not saying that necessarily Donald. I'm talking about you know, the, the, the three older kids and who knows. I, I, don't, I can't figure it out. Uh, one other note here is the, the big three, what I would call them, the big three Trump defenders, the people who were with him for a while, Newt, Rudy, as in Newt Gingrich, Rudy Giuliani, and Chris Christie, none of them getting senior – administration jobs and that's uh that that was unexpected that's a big unexpected uh on my part as how that happened i mean chris christie okay there's some obvious uh the jared kushner thing 
Uh, Chris Christie's approval rating in New Jersey is at 18%. I think it's the lowest polling approval rating of any governor in any state since polling began. Uh, and he's underwater amongst Republicans in New Jersey. Most Republicans think he's made, um, doing a bad job. Nobody wants to see him there. Everybody would like to see him leave, it seems. But he seems to can't get out because he can't get the right position. Now, Rudy set his sights on Secretary of State. He didn't want anything else. Supposedly, Christie only wanted to be Attorney General. He didn't want anything else. Uh, Newt, I'm not sure about. But it is surprising that those staunch defenders of Rudy Giuliani, I'm sorry, of Donald Trump are not going to be in the administration. I am, I am surprised by that. Um, well, let's see. Uh, I am a little bit nervous about a guy like Rex Tillerson, an Arab, uh, oil man who very close to the Arab states, no track record with regard to Israel. James Mattis also very close to the Arab states, although uh, Mattis seems to share this antipathy towards Iran, which would be helpful. But as a pro-Israel person, you've got to be a little bit nervous about the direction that this is taking. Very establishment, very James Baker. And uh, we should not forget James Baker, the Secretary of State in the George Herbert Walker Bush era, a foe of Israel. Uh, no question a foe of the Israeli right. And um, Baker is exerting uh, enormous influence over this administration right now from all reports. Um, you know, the, the one thing that's going is the symbolic, well, let's move the, we'll move the embassy to, to J- Jerusalem. And that seems to be still in play. But I got to be honest, that's just a symbol. That's not enough for me. I, I don't want, that's not what I want. I want real policy change from the Obama policy towards Israel. So we will see, wait and see as we go. Another week goes by. Uh, so much more is happening. And we will take it up next week here on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.